I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello and welcome to The Hedgehog and the Fox, the podcast that's curious about curiously good books. Sometimes, and it's the case with the subject of this programme, a book is published and you think, I'm as close to dead centre in the target readership for this title as it's possible to be. Let me explain. Just after I graduated, I went to Greece to teach English for a year. Not to some whitewashed Cycladic island or to Athens, but a much smaller city, 90 kilometres by road northwest of the capital, Thebes. The very first rough guide, which was to Greece, had recently been published. It called Thebes a dusty provincial town. But to me, its name stood out from those of other dusty provincial towns. How could it not? Seven-gated Thebes, whose patron god was Dionysus, birthplace of Heracles, the city of Oedipus and Antigone. A few years before that, I'd been captivated by Ted Hughes' version of the Oedipus legend on the radio, adapted from the Roman dramatist Seneca. Plague-stricken, accursed, blood-soaked Thebes. It was bound to make an impression. The reality, perhaps inevitably, was more rough guide than Seneca Hughes. But Thebes' history is as long and rich as its legends. Every day on the way to school, I'd pass the remains of a Mycenaean palace. There were no monuments to rival Athens, and rivaling Athens is a big part of Thebes' story, but it was not hard to be impressed when someone told you this was the crossroads where Oedipus killed his father, this was where the Sphinx posed her riddle. But for all its importance to Greek history and myth, Thebes tends to get bit parts, in the broader story of ancient Greece. Until now. Paul Cartledge, Emeritus A.G. Leventis Professor of Greek Culture at Cambridge University, has devoted a whole book to what he calls the forgotten city of ancient Greece. And even if you didn't spend a year teaching in Thebes in the late 1980s, I think you're likely to find it fascinating for the fresh insights that a shift in perspective can bring. Seeing the world not from violet-crowned Athens, as Theban poet Pindar put it, but from the dancing floor of Ares, Thebes. When I spoke to Paul recently, I began by asking him about his first visit to the city. Well, prepare yourself for a little bit of a shock, because I was on the bus 
going not to Thebes, though through Thebes, <laughs> to Delphi. So I went to Greece first in 1970, which was much later than some of my contemporaries who'd been there as undergraduates or they'd been there even before for one reason or another. But I went as a second year graduate student at Oxford and I was going to do a doctorate. I was in the middle of a doctorate with John Boardman and the doctorate was on Sparta and so the Peloponnese and I realised that there was quite a big divide uh, in the scholarly circles in the British school. I was of course attached to the British school between those who studied something Athenian and probably something written involving epigraphy or some uh, written text. And me, who was doing an archaeological doctorate on a city which notoriously was not very high culturally literate. Uh, They were literate, but they didn't produce their own uh, literature, as it were, with some exceptions. And then there were those who worked even further north than Athens, and so were working on Macedonia or northern Greece. And Thebes, and this is quite normal, I think, both in antiquity and in modernity, fell between all these stools. So if you study central Greece, or if you're a visitor, first time to Greece, it's not Thebes that you want to see, despite all the mythology, despite all its eclat, it's Delphi. So my very first encounter with Thebes was, as you describe it, a dusty provincial and actually very small and rather poor. This is 1970. Later, when I went back in the early 80s, suddenly I was in the middle of cotton fields, terrific irrigation, Theban farmers, Boeotian farmers generally, were very well off. This is EU. They recently joined. This is ASOC. Everything's going brilliantly. And um, I went then quite seriously all around Boeotia. I was going with a friend, no longer with us, sadly, but I was studying all the battlefield sites and uh, the historic places, Leuctra or Komenos, etc., etc., not just Thebes, but that was the first time I went to the Thebes Museum, and it was the only time actually that I've been, I've not been to see the new museum. I was going to go, and then the COVID got in the way of that. So my first experience of Thebes was really in the early 80s, and by then it had become larger, brighter, not very exciting, not cultured, and of course that's part of the part of the myth in a way from antiquity, the ocean swine, um, the oceans are not um, particularly light-footed or high-minded, they're sort of heavy rural farming folk, um, a bit like the Midwest in the States, if I can put it that way. Yes. Well, I remember the place I lived was sort of on the outskirts of the town. And when I would go in to do my teaching the afternoon, you know, the four o'clock sun beating down, I would pass a gate that said Electra's Gate, but it was a modern erection made of two posts with a crossbar that said Electra's Gate on it. And then I would begin to climb up the hill and I would go past something that said Cadmos Palace on it. And it's a very strange experience, you know, thinking about that incredible antiquity, but, you know, trucks rumbling by and people very much getting on with their everyday lives. Exactly. Well, I was 
going to add, and I should have added, that of course the major landmark of Thebes is what was later called the Cadmire, their Acropolis, which is the biggest in, in Greece in terms of its square meterage, you know, the extent of it, not so much the height of it, the Acropolis of Athens is the highest. But um, it was very, very substantial, and that was the centre of settlement throughout antiquity. Going back originally, the first, I think one can call city of Thebes, was uh, based on and around it in the late Bronze Age, what we call 15th, 14th, 13th century. And that word you mentioned, Cadmire, and the palace of Cadmos, named after the so-called or the mythical founder of the city of Thebes, was, of course, the principal organisational and administrative centre of Thebes, making Thebes one of the top tier of, what, half a dozen cities, along with Pylos, Mycenae, Tyrians, and there really are only a very few distinguished for its fortifications, which of course in myth are cashed out as the seven gates, and you mentioned yes. the Electra gate. We actually don't know precisely where any of those seven gates were. We uh, assign locations and names, but they're not absolutely fixed by, for example, an inscription. And in this earliest city of Thebes, late Bronze Age, late second millennium BC, literacy came to Greece. And of course, this is not unique to Thebes, but when the Linear B tablets were deciphered in the 1950s, this was actually a very good time for Thebes because some of the tablets, some of the most important ones excavated in Thebes were excavated in the decades immediately after the decipherment so that you could get them out of the ground and then you could read them. And goodness me, you found on them Thebans, the actual name of the people. You found on them Lacedaimonios, which is the adjective of Sparta. So indicating connections between Thebes and Sparta we knew about, obviously, trade. We knew about interconnectivity in the late Bronze Age, the Mycenaean world, as we call it. But Thebes suddenly rose up the pecking order. And then that raised questions. I mean, we may come back to this, about um, Thebes's role in introducing writing yeah. to Greece in whatever form. Yeah. I mean, you've already alluded, Paul, to the fact that the modern city sits on top of the ancient city, which, of course, creates problems. I, mean, I remember when I lived there, people would say, you know, any time you want to build something here, the work has to stop because as soon as the archaeologists come in, they, they discover something and we, we have to suspend activity. So, I mean, in practical terms, that must, that must impede our knowledge about the, the ancient city somewhat. Totally. And it's exactly the same problem in Athens and in Sparta for a different reason. In Athens, there's a famous passage in a work of Cicero's where one of the characters, actually Cicero's brother, says to another, everywhere we step, where we put a foot down in Athens, we're stepping on a piece of history. Well, the other city, which is in the same case as Thebes, it's more extreme, is Sparta, because Sparta, modern Sparta, was not built until 1834, the main settlement had shifted in the Middle Ages away from the plain up to the mountain foothills at uh, Mistra. So when it was decided to actually recreate Sparta immediately after the War of Independence and the foundation of the state in 1832 or so, Sparta was built smack on top. 
<laughs> of uh, the ancient town, and therefore um, that makes life extremely difficult there. But Thebes is in the same case, except that it's pretty much a continuity of occupation, though very, very slight relative to antiquity, where we're talking about maybe tens of thousands of inhabitants, maybe as many as 50,000 in its classical peak. But um, we're talking about hundreds and um, just a few thousand, but nevertheless continuity. And so it typically, sadly, in a way, it's modernization of that originally peasant shepherd village by way of putting down first gas and then electricity and then now, of course, cables. Every time you dig down pretty much below the surface, pretty much anywhere, you're going to hit some level which is in some sense pre Modern, it's it's ancient. Not always, of course, as far back as the very foundation of the city in the Bronze Age or the refoundation, really, in the early historical period. But at any rate, certainly something. Now that causes problems for the locals. That if they declare that something has been found on their land, then, as you rightly say, they're liable to be interrupted for a good long time. And that makes it very difficult for the archaeological service, which um, wants, of course, maximal information, and yet is very often, as elsewhere in Greece, underfunded. So it's actually a you know lose lose situation very often. So it wouldn't be quite true to say that our view of ancient Greece is sort of a an Athenian eye view, but. Would it be fair to say that we don't tend to view the ancient Greek world through Theban eyes? And that's really what your book is trying to do, which is so distinctive. There is no um, doubting what you've just said. And actually, I would go as far as to say that our view of ancient Greece is predominantly Athena-centric. And there's a very good reason for that. In the classical period, as we call it, the 5th, 4th centuries BC, when Athens produced a whole string of geniuses in all kinds of cultural spheres, and they were very much literate. And so the evidence surviving for the Greek world and what the Greek world was doing is very often seen through Athenian eyes. So the major war, for example, between Greeks, I don't mean the war between Greeks and non-Greeks, but a war between Greeks and Greeks was recorded by Thucydides. Its successor period was recorded by Xenophon, both of them Athenians. The greatest philosopher of the period was Socrates and his pupil Plato, Athenians. They founded a school. One of Plato's greatest pupils was Aristotle, not an Athenian, but where did he do his philosophy? Where did he found his school? Athens. And so when the Romans, thank goodness, in my sense, thank goodness, decided that the ancient Greeks were their cultural ancestors, it was through Athens, and then secondarily, it's true, through Alexandria in Egypt, and the Library and Museum there, that our evidence for earlier Greek history through the Romans, through to the Renaissance, through to early modern enlightenment and us, it's an Athenian story. There's no, I think, questioning that. Besides Athens, there are two other major loci or centres of both power and information, which, for different reasons, actually, ironically, don't really speak for themselves, though they are 
the sources of the, the view, the vision. One of those is Sparta, and I started out, my first um, research area was Sparta, archaeology and history of Sparta, where I was countering an Athenian narrative, trying to put a Spartan spin on the way in which Greek history could be looked at. And then apart from Sparta and Athens, the third major locus is Macedon up in North Greece. And of course, I suppose the most famous ancient Greek of all, in this sense that his fame is pretty much universal. It's both Oriental and Occidental, and it's all through Europe, through into Africa, into Asia, Far East is Alexander, who later becomes Alexander the Great, Megalexandros, as the Greeks call him. And so the history of Greece from the 4th century BC onwards is a Macedonian-driven history. And this has a very particular, rather unfortunate and unpleasant uh, implication for the history of Thebes, which is actually the fourth most important Greek city in the ancient world, but tends to get crunched between Athens, Sparta, and Macedon. And in one very literal physical sense, it got crunched by Alexander the Great, who physically had Thebes destroyed. I call my book The Forgotten City of Ancient Greece, but actually it was for uh, 20 years the obliterated, the non-existent city of ancient Greece between 335 and 315 BC, BCE. Alexander, for purely political reasons, uh, it's not cultural, it's not um, religious. Uh, Alexander was very religious. He, he was very careful not to destroy shrines. But because Thebes was his city's enemy, and because he thought that it was actually to his advantage to make an example of a major city that had opposed him, no, not even a major city is going to be able to get away with opposing me, so I'm going to wipe it out. And then he takes off for Asia, and he becomes Alexander the Great by conquering the Persian Empire. So Thebes is absolutely central to all these stories, Athens's story, Sparta's and Macedon's, but it itself can't speak for itself. It never produced a decent or a, at least a reputable and an impressive historian. That leads very neatly then on to my next question, which is, given what you've just said, given that absence of the view from Thebes written from within Thebes, how do you as a historian, then tell the story of Thebes that isn't just the outside perspective? How do you get back into the city? So what one does is um, I started out with the notion of rectification or rebalancing, as it were. One knew, if you're a general historian of Greece, that Thebes at several moments was either the most important or one of the most important cities, and yet it didn't seem to have its own independent narrative, its own self-sustaining, self-promotion, as it were. So I thought, a bit of interpretative charity. I'll look for the best things. I'll look for the things that, in my opinion, were the most influential on subsequent both Greek and Roman, and therefore through us to modern history, and apply a kind of ethnographic anthropological view, the same sort of way in which indeed I'd approach Sparta, trying to imagine what it would have been like to be a Theban, as it were, and uh, to talk to Thebans, which of course we historians can't do. 
And then the second reason was uh, one particular Theban. I don't know why I'm a sort of, I suppose, boy's own um, hero type of admirer. And this goes back to my very, very early childhood. And uh, aged eight, I was reading a version of the Iliad told to the children. And so Achilles was my great hero. But by the time I achieved mature years, What I looked for in a hero was not merely military skill and exploits, killing lots of other people, in other words, as Achilles did. But at any rate, to cut a long story short, I developed a bit of a passion for a Theban called Epaminondas, a great name, of course. And he was born round about 400 BC, and he died 362. And uh, he, for the time in which he lived, was for. 10 years, the single most influential Greek in the entirety of the Greek world. And he presided over a period when Thebes was the dominant power in all mainland Greece. And it turned out that Epaminondas was not merely a man of action, but also a man of reflection, that he was uh, thought to be an adept of Pythagorean philosophy, which, among its many other quirky features, meant that he was probably a vegetarian, if not a vegan. It also turned out, and this is intersecting with partly my Spartan work, in ancient Greece there was a custom It was a culture. It wasn't probably that widespread within any one Greek city in terms of social class. I suspect it was more restricted to the upper spectrum socially, economically. And it's called pederastia, Greek word pederastia means lust for or love of boys by adult males. And in Thebes, as in Sparta, and some other few cities, and there's one actually quite near to Thebes called Thespiae. This was something that was highly rated. It wasn't shameful. It wasn't something to be put in the closet. But actually a way of being a good Theban or a good Thespian was to have a younger boyfriend whom you mentor. Thebes was unique in incorporating that social custom, which probably went back a couple of hundred years, into its military formation. They actually established an entire unit, a regiment, a crack, like we would say the Marines. And they were what we would call today gay couples, an older man, a younger. They were both men. Uh, but they were uh, in a pairing relationship. So there were 150 of those, and they were called the Sacred Band. So this is all at the period that uh, Epaminondas was around. Epaminondas never married, and he died at the battle, the final battle that he won. He was the general, and he won the battle, but he died. It's like Nelson at uh, Trafalgar. And he died with his younger boyfriend. I mean, he wouldn't have been that much younger, probably. But that just shows you that uh, in all these ways, Epaminondas seemed to speak to a different kind of cultural formation than the one one normally associates with, say, Athens. Yes. I mean, so they're 90 kilometres apart, these two cities, Athens and Thebes. How would you sort of describe the cultural difference between them you've already alluded to to one aspect but I I was wondering is a matter of the sort of vanity of small differences or are are there actually really deep cultural 
divides? I think that um, the difference between um, Theban and Athenian culture has been exaggerated by the Athenians. They played up what they took to be their intellectual superiority to the extent that they managed to suppress the fact that Theban culture, in terms of its generation of interesting myths, its production of brilliant poets and brilliant musicians, was all obliterated under this terrible rubric of Boeotian pigs. The ancients were very regional, so if you were a Boeotian, then you would speak a particular dialect of Greek that's different from the dialect spoken in Athens. You write your Greek in a different letter form. You have the same letters, but you write them in a different form from those used in Athens. And so in all these ways, you are culturally separate. But nevertheless, what the Athenians did was highlight the difference and exaggerate the inferiority of the the Thebans and other Boeotians. And there was one particular, and I think this actually is probably the most important in terms of when we're coming into the major conflict of the Greek world in the early 5th century BC, and this is the invasion by the Persians of mainland Greece in order to incorporate mainland Greece into the Persian Empire. This city that lies between Thebes and Athens called Plataea, decided it preferred, though it was Boeotian culturally, to ally with Athens than to ally with, to be part of the Boeotian political sphere. And the Thebans really never forgave the Plataeans for what they considered an act of treachery and disloyalty to their Boeotian heritage and ethnicity. And that does actually play out in in various ways during the actual fighting with the Persians and then later on when the Athenians are fighting the Spartans, the Plataeans are on their side, the Thebans are on the Spartan side. So there are all sorts of ways in which Plataea is a major irritant between the two cities. And the the side that the the, the, um, the Thebans took in the, the Persian Wars clearly left a very, very deep mark. It was, you know, allying itself with the, the Persians was something from which it its reputation, it seems, never really recovered. In a way, it was the single biggest mistake, though this is where I'm trying to apply interpretative charity, somewhat understandable in that every Greek town or people north of Boeotia had gone over to, had decided the Persians who were coming in with this massive amphibious invasion by land, by sea, thousands more people on their side than the Greeks could muster. Most cities north of Thebes had decided that they were going to go over with the Persians. They were going to side with them either actively or passively. So either not resist them or actively join and therefore find themselves fighting against a relatively small but nevertheless significant coalition of Greeks who called themselves Greeks. This is actually when Hellenicity, the notion of a Hellenic consciousness, first emerges in a very strong way and gets definition Under Athens and Sparta, there was a resistance, so Thebes did have a choice. It could have joined Athens and Sparta, but decided not to. 
And one reason it did, apart from the geopolitical, the strategic, the, the purely physical uh, threat to them, they were really, you know, under the cosh, was the fact that Thebes in 480 BC, that's when we're talking about, was dominated by a relatively narrow, a very small clique. Most Greek cities were ruled by an oligarchy of some sort. In other words, relatively few of the citizen body, the wealthier, the more aristocratic, the better educated, all that sort of thing. But it seems the Thebans had taken that one step further and they were ruled by a very narrow, just a few hundred people. And The Persians typically liked in their subordinate states within their vast empire, which they couldn't possibly directly rule all of it. It's like the British Empire. It's like the Roman Empire. So you rule actually through local delegates. And they tended to want them to be either a tyrant, that is a sole autocrat ruler, or a small clique. It's much easier to control that. So the Thebans will have thought, well, we'll be just the sort of people that the Persians will want when inevitably they win. And most Greeks probably most thought the Persians would win. So Theban decision is, in in retrospect, disastrous because the loyalist Greeks won, (laughs) the resistance prevailed. But on the other hand, in its own time and on its own terms, it's not uh, understandable. Now, the the Athenians may have referred to Thebans as the ocean swine, but one (laughs) thing they did have time for was um, was Theban mythology. What was the appeal for the Athenian dramatists of, uh, of, of Theban myth? It's complicated, isn't it, um, to try to understand why one uh, people, which um, has its own, to some extent, mythology, should borrow the mythology of another. However, uh, the Thebans were actually right up there in terms of Greek myth production. Uh, The other major cycle, see, there was a Theban cycle and uh, an epic cycle. So a series of poems that sequentially trace out um, a history of a particular city. And in this case, in terms of a family and its descendants. The other major cycle of Greek myth was not purely Greek. It was the Trojan cycle. So it's Greeks united against non-Greeks, barbarians as they later came to be called. The Theban, the interest of the Theban cycle is that it's endogenous. Uh, The founder of Thebes is supposedly a foreigner. And I think possibly Thebes is the only Greek city founded by a non-Greek in myth as opposed to history. We don't know whether Cadmos ever really existed. He allegedly was from what's today Lebanon, from Tyre. And Zeus, the great god Zeus, took a fancy to his sister and, well, snatched, raped, uh, whatever one likes to call it. He took her with him back to mainland Greece and Cadmos 
uh, set it as his task as her brother to go and rescue her, but got, as it were, diverted. He did rescue her, and she gave her name to the continent of Europe. And there's an irony. She was Asiatic by origin, but she gave her name to the continent of Europe. Her name was Europa. And he got distracted, as I said. He went to Delphi, supposedly. He got an oracle. When you see a cow lying down, there found a city. This is all part of the myth. And so he becomes the founder. The great walls are built to the accompaniment of music. It's all, of course, on the Cadmire. The Acropolis is the centre. And that, that's um, a very big part of um, the Theban epic cycle. But Cadmos uh, marries a lady called Harmonia, and all the gods and goddesses supposedly attend their wedding. Well, this is Thebes. Thebes is saying, we are so important that when our founder got married, every Olympian god and goddess thought it worth coming down to earth to attend their, you know, you get the point. They, Thebans managed to create a massively powerful self-proclaimed mythology of um, interest. Well, the Athenians, I think, they had their own foundation myths, of course, controversial, interesting, a struggle between Athena and Poseidon and so on. But I think they were slightly jealous that um, the Thebans were able to have all the gods and goddesses, not just two of them, down there on Earth. At any rate, it's in later generations that um, the cycle that you're talking about where uh, Athenian dramatists of the 5th century BC appropriate Theban myths for entertainment, but also in instruction. Tragedy, the word's uh, etymology is uh, disputed. It means some literally goat song. But at any rate, it's a combination of song, dance, spoken word, uh, and it's theatre. And the Athenians invented the notion, really, of theatre as we understand it today. And they had two annual theatre festivals. One of them was more important, the great Dionysia, in honour of Dionysus. And where did Dionysus come from? Where was his mother from? Oh, dear, Thebes. And so there is a certain rationale for Athenians being interested in Theban myths and putting them on their stage. But why did they focus on civil war, incest, patricide? In other words, the Oedipus saga. Oedipus kills his father, not knowing it's his father, marries his mother, not knowing it's his mother, and therefore becomes both the uh, father and half-brother of his children. I mean, horrors. So an analogy would be red-top tabloid press. The gutter element of the interest is, oh my God, these Thebans. Admittedly, only one family, but nevertheless, how dysfunctional can you get? And then as Thebes in the fifth century, that's the real Thebes, was an enemy of Athens, as Thebes, the real Thebes of the 5th century, after its disastrous treachery in the Persian Wars, had a form of oligarchy still, a more moderate one, but still an oligarchy, whereas Athens was going ahead more and more democratic. So the political gulf could now be exploited on the stage. And so you get completely unhistorical occasions where 
Theseus, who is the, if you like, the equivalent of Cadmos for Athens, he's the founding father of Athens. So he doesn't physically found the city, he unites the city. Theseus uh, encounters a herald from Thebes, and he, <laughs> the Theban herald assumes that Theseus is an autocrat. Um, he's a king, so he must be an absolute monarch. No, Theseus says, it's not like that at all here in Athens, because we've got, and then he in effect, though he's using flowery, tragic language, says we are a democracy. Well, of course, that's a nonsense in terms of history. You can't have a king in a democracy. But that's how the political divide between Thebes and Athens was played out on the stage. So you've got Theban traditional myths nasty enough by themselves, then given an added anti-oligarchic or pro-democratic twist, giving us some of the greatest literature that's come down to us, uh, the Oedipus plays of Sophocles, including the Antigone, Oedipus the King and Oedipus at Colonus. You've got Euripides' suckling women, you've got Aeschylus' Seven Against Thieves, and there are the three great tragedians. You've got Euripides' Bacchae, set not in Athens, but set in Thebes, where things, well, mayhem, because a mother kills her son. She's under a delusion that the son is a wild animal. She's in a trance, and she kills her. And so not only in Theban myth do you have a son killing a father, you have a mother killing a son. Well, this is, I suppose, sensationalism, but also it's a meditation on the impact in this case, of Dionysiac religion. So it's a a legitimate reflection in Athens. We're worshipping Dionysus. Be careful. If you go too far, look what happens. And, of course, that's a, a classic Greek nostrum, nothing in excess. It's on the temple of Delphi of Apollo. But we don't have Theban dramatists writing Theban cycles. Why is that? We apparently do, in other words, there were Theban dramatists, but not a single Theban play. But then not a single non-Athenian play has survived from antiquity. What the Thebans were good at, in particular, was music. And uh, music tended to be accompanied by uh, words, or put it the other way around. Poetry was very often sung to the accompaniment of a kithara, a lyre, or to the accompaniment of an aulos, which is a kind of reeded instrument like an oboe, really, today. So Thebes produced the greatest poet of a particular kind, a praise, a singing poetry. It's called Epinicean in Greek, epi on top of a Nike victory. So victors in the great Panhellenic contests at Olympia, at Delphi, in Nemea, and at Corinth would be hymned by poets when they got back home, a big celebration. You won this victory in this Panhellenic Games. Here is a poem about you and your ancestors. Well, the very best poet of that kind in the entirety of Greece was a man who, if not actually born in Thebes, he may have been born near Thebes, but certainly grew up as a Theban, namely Pindar, Pindaros in Greek, of the late 6th and early 5th centuries BC. 
So, Paul, the um, the myths are are clearly still going strong. We're talking at a time when travel isn't really a realistic possibility. But let's assume next year or before too long, people can again travel and go to Greece. In what spirit would you say someone should approach a visit to Thebes? Probably doing what you were doing, you know, traveling from Athens towards towards Delphi. So, when we're allowed again to travel to Greece. Uh, I shall be there. I think one should approach Thebes in a spirit of balance. That's to say, Athens has so many, many more sites that are worth visiting. There was a traveller of the second century AD called Pausanias, and he said such and such is worthy of seeing. And it has so many more than Sparta. So don't go expecting, don't go expecting lots and lots of ancient monuments. And uh, there's one reason for that, which is, as I've already mentioned, that Alexander the Great ordered the city, the classical city of Thebes, to be destroyed. So you just wouldn't expect to find very much that's earlier than 300 um, BC, BC, still on the ground. but. You should go now, and this is um, possible, of course, to do virtually, and I've done it many times myself. There are many different programs enabling you to access virtually the new Museum of Thebes, which has been built within the past decade. And that will give you a very good sense, not only of Thebes, it's like the Acropolis Museum of Athens. It's the Museum of Thebes and its region. And it'll give you a sense of the diversity, the very extended history, over thousands of years of of ancient Thebes. It focuses inevitably on the um, classical period and the immediately preceding, it's called the archaic period, because um, post-classical Thebes, the new Thebes, 315 BC and later, it didn't actually figure very, very strongly in the historical sense, nor did it produce any major monument that people would call worthy of a visit. So it is really between about 600 and 300. That's the Thebes that um, is the most interesting of the ancient historical period. And then way back before that, in the prehistoric 14th, 13th centuries, it was then a major fortified capital of an administrative district. And would you say that sort of seeing the view from the Kavmia has left a a lasting impression on your view of the whole of ancient Greek history? It does. It's, um, I have a mental map and um, the coordinates are up in the north Pella, which is the capital of Macedonia, right down in the south Sparta and off to the east Athens. This is mainland Greece. Of course, other people will see things from a island point of view, or they will be students of Hellenism in Sicily, or, you know, but I'm, of course, very much a mainland Greek-centred person. Well, now I'm adding this fourth coordinate, so I've got Pella up there, Athens here, Sparta here, and now Thebes has expanded its uh, horizon for me uh, in the centre. I was talking to Paul Cartledge about his new book, Thebes, The Forgotten City of Ancient Greece which is out now in hardback from Picador and also available as an e-book. I'll put links to some of Paul's other books in the show notes on the website 
thehedgehogandthefox.com. That's also where you'll find over 70 more episodes of the programme. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, catch up on any interviews you've missed, and leave a review. I'll be back again soon with another programme. So until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.